Today is Wednesday, April the 5th, 2023. Welcome to the award-winning Personal Computer Show. I'm Hank Key, and do you know who has your personal data? Do you know how big tech companies are using your personal data? Our website is pcradioshow.org. We are heard each Wednesday at 6 p.m. Eastern Time on the Progressive Radio Network, prn.live, streaming on the Internet. Podcasts of the program is available on prn.live on the internet. You can leave us a message with your question or comment at hank at pcradioshow.org. The Restrict Act could be used to censor any website in America, not just TikTok. S-686 could be used to censor any website in America, foreign or domestic, not just TikTok. This is a gross overreach of legislation. The restricting the emergence of security threats that risk information and communications technology act or the appropriately titled restrict act could be used to censor any website in America, not just TikTok. The legislation would authorize the Secretary of Commerce to identify, deter, disrupt, prevent, prohibit, investigate, or otherwise mitigate, including by negotiating, entering into, or imposing and enforcing any mitigation measure to address any risk arising from any covered transaction by any person or with respect to any property subject to the jurisdiction of the United States that the Secretary determines, poses an undue or unacceptable risk to the national security of the United States. I'll read that again. It says, by any person or with respect to any property subject to the jurisdiction of the United States. That could be anything, or any website that is determined to be interfering in or altering the result or reported result of a federal election as determined in coordination with the Attorney General, the Director of National Intelligence, the Secretary of Treasury, and the Federal Election Commission, meaning it would potentially become illegal to question the reported result of any federal legislation since questioning the results could potentially interfere with public acceptance of the result. How else does one interfere with the reported results of a federal regulation? Or any website that opposes a war with a foreign adversary by steering policy or regulatory decisions in favor of the strategic objectives of a foreign adversary to the detriment of the national security of the United States, since merely advocating against the war would favor the foreign adversary objectives. By definition, this would prohibit anti-war activities on the Internet. Censorship in the United States during wartime is not at all unprecedented, nor is it unique to the United States, since war against adversaries, foreign and domestic, is almost always the pretext for censorship. World War I, World War II, the Korean War and the Vietnam War all had various measures employed to control speech and punish wrong think, and it's always arbitrary. The Espionage Act of 1917, 18 U.S.C. Section 2388, for example, very similarly prohibits anti-war reports or even to simply oppose the draft, willfully make or convey false reports or false statements with intent to interfere with the operation or success of the military, or willfully obstruct the recruitment or enlistment service of the United States. 
This looks like an attempt to codify the so-called bad tendency test that was used to prosecute individuals under the Espionage Act. The Supreme Court upheld this test in the 1919 Debs v. United States decision, which found natural tendency and reasonably probable effect to obstruct the recruiting service, and unless the defendant had a specific intent to do so in his mind. Other decisions would also uphold provisions of the Espionage Act until the Supreme Court outlined the imminent danger test in Brandenburg v. Ohio in 1969, finding that even advocacy of overthrowing the government could be protected speech if they were not immediately linked to violent actions to do so. Brandenburg stated, The constitutional guarantees of free speech and free press does not permit a state to forbid or prescribe advocacy of the use of force or of law violation except where such advocacy is directed to inciting or producing imminent lawless action and is likely to incite or produce such action. Arguably, the Restrict Act goes even further, since the standard would become anything in favor, the strategic objectives of a foreign adversary, not only prohibiting those who are not even anti-war per se, but favor a diplomatic approach to resolving foreign disputes. So if you were a news or nonprofit organization that opposed, say, a thermonuclear war and advocated for peace or nuclear arms reduction treaties to avert an existential threat to humanity, it could be prohibited because those also might favor the strategic objectives of a foreign adversary, even if you believe that such treaties might actually bolster U.S. national security. All that would be needed would be for the Secretary of Commerce, in coordination with the Attorney General, the Director of National Intelligence, the Secretary of Treasury, and the Federal Elections Commission to determine otherwise. Obviously, this all directly violates the First Amendment prohibition that Congress shall make no law abridging the freedom of speech or of the press. The website does not even need to be owned directly by a foreign government like China or one of its organs like the Chinese Communist Party. Instead, a controlling interest or covered holding is defined as regardless of how or when such holding was or will be obtained or otherwise come to have been held. A controlling holding held directly or indirectly in an ICTS-covered holding entity by a foreign adversary. Read that again. It states, directly or indirectly, which opens the door for non-state-owned holdings. But then it goes further. Providing for targeting any holding, the structure of which is designed or intended to evade or circumvent the application of this act, subject to regulations prescribed by the Secretary. That could be anything. The legislation covers wireless local area networks, mobile networks, satellite payloads, satellite operations and control, cable access points, wireline access points, core networking systems, long, short, and backhaul networks, or edge computer platforms, internet hosting services, cloud-based or distributed computing and data storage, machine learning, predictive analytics, and data science products and services, including those involving the provision of services to assist a party utilize, manage or maintain open source software, manage services, content delivery services, internet or network-enabled sensors, webcams, endpoint surveillance or monitoring devices, modems or home network devices, unmanned vehicles, including drones and other aerial systems, 
autonomous or semi-autonomous vehicles, or any other products or service integral to the provision, maintenance, or management of such products or services. Desktop applications, mobile applications, gaming applications, payment applications, web-based applications, information and communications technology products and services integral to artificial intelligence and machine learning, quantum key distribution, quantum communications, quantum computing, post-quantum cryptography, autonomous systems, advanced robotics, biotechnology, synthetic biology, computational biology, and e-commerce technology and services, including any electronic techniques for accomplishing business transactions, online retail, internet-enabled logistics, internet-enabled payment technology, and online marketplaces. If such websites, applications, or platforms have more than 1 million users or has sold more than 1 million products in the United States, which is actually quite easy to do if you host a platform. Say you host an e-commerce multi-vendor platform that has 1,000 vendors who each have 1,000 customers annually. Each one of them is relatively small, but in the aggregate that adds up to more than 1 million products sold. It pretty much covers the entire internet. But where the rubber meets the road would simply be on web hosts, especially the large ones that small businesses depend on, which easily have more than 1 million customers. So even if the internet were to censor a small entity, the pressure could simply instead be put on the company's web host to remove the content or else be dubbed a foreign trader or lose everything. Let's face it. If the purpose of the legislation was to simply target TikTok, China and the Chinese Communist Party, why does it, in fact, potentially cover every single website in America? In fact, the legislation is not narrowly tailored to forcing divestiture of TikTok by Chinese entities. Why not? Maybe banning TikTok is simply a pretext to censoring everything. Haven't we learned that legislation such as a Patriots Act had nothing to do with patriotism and the IRA or the Inflation Reduction Act has nothing to do with inflation. This legislation is being written by lawyers. Don't the lawyers know better what the English language is? The debate on ChatGPT repercussions goes on. Despite just releasing ChatGPT4, OpenAI is already working on the fifth iteration of the immensely popular chat application GPT-5. According to a new report from the Boy Genius Report, that's GPR publication, we could be seeing those major upgrades as soon as the end of the year. One milestone in particular could be within reach of this turns out to be true. The ability to be indistinguishable from humans in conversation. And it doesn't help that we've essentially been training this AI chatbot with hundreds of thousands, if not millions, of conversations a day. Computer and AI pioneer Alan Turing famously proposed a test for artificial intelligence that if you could speak to a computer and not know that you were not speaking to a human, the computer could be said to be artificially intelligent. With OpenAI's ChatGPT, We've certainly crossed that threshold to a large degree. It can still be occasionally wonky, but so can humans. But for everyday use, ChatGPT passes this test. 
Considering the rise and development of ChatGPT technology since its debut in November of last year, the rumors of even great advances are likely to be true. And while seeing such tech improve so quickly can be exciting, there are also plenty of dangers and legal pitfalls that can easily cause harm. For instance, the amount of malware scams being pushed has steadily increased since the chatbot tech's introduction and its rapid integration into applications calls into question privacy and data collection issues, not to mention rampant plagiarism issues. But it's just not me seeing the issue with ChatGPT being pushed so rapidly and aggressively. Tech leaders and experts in AI have also been sounding the alarm. The Future of Life Institute, that's the FLI, an organization that is dedicated to minimizing the risk and misuse of new technologies, has published an open letter calling for AI labs and companies to immediately halt their work on open AI systems beyond ChatGPT4. Notable figures like Apple co-founder Steve Wozniak and OpenAI co-founder Elon Musk have agreed that progress should be paused in order to ensure that people can enjoy existing systems and that said systems are benefiting everyone. The letter states, unfortunately, this level of planning and management is not happening. Even though recent months have seen AI labs locked in an out-of-control race to develop and deploy ever more powerful digital minds that no one, not even their creators, can understand, predict, or reliably control. As we're seeing, the rush for companies to integrate and use this new technology is causing a plethora of issues. These include CNET using it to generate articles that sometimes contain inaccuracies to credit card information potentially being leaked on ChatGPT. There's very little being done in the way of protecting privacy, intellectual property rights of smart artists, or preventing personal information stored from leaking. And until we get some kind of handle on this developing technology and how companies using it to do so safely and responsibly, then development should pause until we do. AI Ethics Group says ChatGPT violates FTC rules. They're calling for an investigation. The complaint claims OpenAI's GPT model fails to meet standards of safety laid out by the FTC and asks for development to be paused. A prominent AI ethics organization submitted a complaint with the Federal Trade Commission urging the agency to investigate ChatGPT maker OpenAI and halt its development of future large language learning models. The complaint, filed by the Center for AI and Digital Policy, alleged OpenAI recently released GPT-4 model is biased, deceptive, and a risk to privacy and public safety. The group issued the complaint just one day after a wide group of more than 500 AI experts signed an open letter demanding AI labs immediately pause the development of large language models with the acronym LLM, more powerful than GPT-4 over concerns they could pose, profound risk to society and humanity. The Center for AI and Digital Policies complaint mostly steers clear of hyperbolic predictions of AI being an existential threat to humanity. Instead, the complaint points to the FTC's own stated guidance about AI systems which says 
they should be transparent, explainable, fair, and empirically sound while fostering accountability. GPT-4, the complaint argues, fails to meet those standards. The complaint claims GPT-4, which was released just this past month, launched without any independent assessment and without any way for outsiders to replicate OpenAI's results. The Center for AI and Digital Policy warned the system could be used to spread disinformation, contribute to cybersecurity threats, and potentially worsen or lock in biases that are already well known to AI models. It is time for the FTC to act, the group wrote. There should be independent oversight and evaluation of commercial AI products offered in the United States. The FTC confirmed it had received the complaint, but declined to comment. OpenAI did not respond to requests for comment. The FTC has been thinking out loud about the potential dangers new AI systems could pose to consumers. In a series of blog posts released in recent months, the agency explored ways chatbots or other synthetic media can make it more difficult to parse out what is real online, a potential boon for fraudsters and others looking to deceive people en masse. Evidence already exists that fraudsters can use these tools to generate realistic but fake content quickly and cheaply, disseminating it to large groups or targeting certain communities or specific individuals. This was noted by the FTC. Those concerns, however, fall far, far short of the potential society-level crisis depicted in the letter released this week by the Future of Life Institute. AI experts, both those who signed the letter and others who did not express deep divisions in the level of concern about future large language models. Though almost all concerned AI researchers agree policymakers need to catch up and draft smart rules and regulations to guide AI's development, minds are split when it comes to ascribing human-level intelligence to what are essentially extremely good guessers trained on potentially trillions of parameters. What we should be concerned about this is that this type of hype can both over-exaggerate the capabilities of AI systems and distract from pressing concerns like the deep dependency of this wave of artificial intelligence on a small handful of firms. Google Drive does a surprise rollout of file limits. The new file limit means you can't actually use the storage you buy from Google. Google apparently decided to put a hard limit on the number of files you're allowed to have on one Google Drive account. It is locking out some users. Google rolled out this file limit without warning anyone it would happen. Users over the limit found themselves suddenly locked out of new file uploads and it was up to them to figure out what was going wrong. It all started in February. A post on the Google Drive API issue tracker shows some users have been seeing this error for almost two months now. The original message said the limit for the number of items, whether thrash or not, created by this account has been exceeded. And sometime in March, it was updated to say error 403. This account has exceeded the creation limit of 5 million items. To create more items, move items to the trash and delete them forever. 
Since there's nothing anywhere that informed users Google Drive has a file limit, users originally thought this was a bug and asked Google to quickly fix it. It has been two months now, though, and Google has not issued a public response. Some users say they have gotten Google support to privately confirm the limit is intended, and a pop-up message is starting to show up in the Drive UI for some users. It might be understandable to limit a data hog abusing a free account, but that's not what's happening here. Google is selling this storage to users via both the Google Workspace business accounts and the consumer-grade Google One storage plans. Google One tops out at 30 terabytes of storage, which costs an incredible $150 a month to use. Google Workspace formal plans crap out at 5 terabytes, but an enterprise plan promises as much storage as you need. Both consumer and business account types are subject to this hidden 5 million file limit. Google Drive has a file sharing limit of 400,000 files, but that's easy to work around by just unsharing files. You just don't have to delete anything. This limit is also thoroughly documented in Google's support articles. The 5 million total file cap isn't documented anywhere. And remember, it has been two months since this rollout. It's not listed on the Google One or Google Workspace plan pages. Google also doesn't have any tools to see if you're getting close to this file limit. There's no count of files anywhere. 5 million with 4K cluster files would take up to 20 gigabytes of storage. So that file limit is nowhere near enough for Google customers to use the storage they are actually buying. You could very easily store billions of files in 30 terabytes of space. Even if Google is going to somehow argue this limit is acceptable, it's inexcusable to make this a surprise for paying customers. Google knows the right way to do this. You email everyone, you make a blog post, and you post a pop-up warning message in the Drive UI. And you do this all months ahead of actually rolling out the change, especially for workspace business customers, which are supposed to be paying for a more stable version of Google services with a slow rollout. A surprise change is just baffling. A file limit isn't a bug. Google is calling the 5 million file cap a safeguard to prevent misuse of their system in a way that might impact the stability and safety of the system. The company clarified that the limit applies to how many items one user can create in any drive, not a total cap for all files in a drive. For individual users, that's not a distinction that matters. But it could matter if you share storage with several accounts. Google added this limit does not impact the vast majority of their users' ability to use their Google storage. And in practice, the number of impacted users here is vanishingly small. Presenting the IT Pro Series with Benjamin Rockwell. This is Benjamin Rockland. Now it's time to get down to business. This is where I talk about IT, the workplace, you, and how they all inter interrelate, how they cooperate, how they all just fit together. Now, one of the things that I wanted to give you a little bit of background on is IT audit. Now, as 
as an employee, you may not be directly involved in the technical aspects of information technology management, but you should be aware that there is IT audit. There are auditors running around ensuring compliance, risk management, operational efficiency, and I wanted to give you kind of an idea of some of the key areas that these auditors focus on. There's a few different areas. One of them, Sarbanes-Oxley. The Sarbanes-Oxley Act was written uh, a long time ago. It was uh, written in response to the Enron just tragedy, the scandals, and all of that. And it's a federal law that sets standards for financial reporting and disclosure by any company that is publicly held. So, any you know, if you can buy stock in a company, it should have adherence to Sarbanes-Oxley. Now, the IT auditors will go through and they make a, a, a an effort in sh- ensuring that IT systems and the processes comply with SOX requirements. And most of this, most of this is maintaining accurate and timely financial data and preventing unauthorized access to financial information. Now, the IT, SOX 404, was originally somewhere around, I I remember, I think it was seven lines. It might be less, it might be more, but, but it was... It was memorizable. It, it, it you know, it, it by just, you know, it's it's harder to memorize Psalm twenty three than it is to memorize Sox four hundred four, or at least back then. They've modified it, they've expanded it, and uh, they've inferred a lot of different things in the time since. A lot of it still comes down to making sure there's access controls to financial systems and applications, making sure you have backups, disaster recovery plans, security controls, and monitoring systems for suspicious activities. So that that gives you kind of that little direction there. That's just one area that they, that they look at. Another area that they look at is an area called incident management, change management, problem management. And uh, these are actually where I currently work. Um, this uh, The idea of change management is the process of controlling changes to the IT systems and applications and infrastructure in a way that minimizes disruption and risk. So a problem management, incident management, those incident management controls the incident. You know, the server goes down, a major server goes down, people jump on that and fix it. Uh, and problem management, that server keeps going down, and we've got to find out why it keeps going down. And this is all this all just interrelates to each other. The auditors will assess whether change management policies and procedures are effective. Whether there are enough, whether the changes are implemented in a controlled and documented manner. And they will look at how people review change requests and approvals, how uh, how they're testing and validating changes, how they're checking change logs and documentation, incident management. Again, it's, it's a lot of that process of detecting, analyzing, and responding to those crashes, but also various incidents that are not related necessarily to crashes, but vulnerabilities, IT security incidents, and whatever other events that may affect IT services and operations. So they look at the incident response plans, the procedures, and evaluating the various logs from the incidents, and testing if the teams can respond well. So as you can see, there's a lot that's that's all fitting in here. It all matches in another area. 
is segregation of duties. Segregation of duties is the principle of taking the responsibilities and permissions amongst different individuals and making sure that they stay separated. And they do this to prevent fraud, errors, conflicts of interest. The, the one area, that I, I love this area because the, the easy one to think about is the movie Superman 4. Richard Pryor is, is in that and he plays this role of a computer hacker, a computer programmer who decides he's going to siphon off just a little amount, a fraction of a penny across every check. And it's, it's a penny that would go lost. Well, he said, okay, if it's a lost penny, let's just put it over into my bank account. And he winds up a millionaire. Now, if, if they had proper uh, proper segregation of duties, that would never happen. Somebody would have checked his work. Somebody would have made sure that any programming that he did wouldn't allow for him to put any money into his own account. It's kind of shady, you know. <laughs> so, so this is another area where auditors look. They make sure that uh, people uh, have the right, uh, we call it user provisioning and deprovisioning processes. We we test the controls and reports and all of these things to make sure people aren't going in areas where they shouldn't go. And then there's data privacy. And this is the last one I'm going to cover here. And data privacy policies and controls are big these days. You know, they want to make sure that we're classifying data properly. We're handling the proper policies and procedures, but also a matter of making sure that people do not have unfettered access to personally identifying information. Let me put it a different way. They're making sure, these auditors are making sure that your own personal information isn't being released out to the public. Look, it doesn't matter. Whatever area that they're looking at when they're auditing, it isn't the idea of an IRS audit. This is something to protect the company, but also to protect the shareholders, but also to protect the customers and everyone else. It's a good thing. And we really do need this. Again, there you go. That's the role of the IT auditor. This is Benjamin Rockwell. Back to you, Hank. Thank you, Benjamin. Tech layoffs keep rising. As of March the 27th, a total of 528 companies have laid off workers in 2023. Layoffs are making headlines again, but they're concentrated in just one sector, tech. And those numbers are spiking with layoffs in January clocking in at more than seven times the amount in December, according to layoffs.fyi, which tracks layoffs in the tech industry. In fact, during 2022, more workers in tech were laid off than in 2020 and 2021 combined. These layoffs are a peculiar outlier in an otherwise strong employment environment. The unemployment rate has hovered between 3.4% and 3.7% since April of last year. Bureau data shows and quit rates, which reflect worker confidence this year, are consistently at some of the highest levels in more than 20 years, according to the Federal Reserve Bank of St. Louis. Employment at large is doing well, but when layoffs are happening in the most visible sector on the internet, you're going to hear about it. What's going on with layoffs in tech? The biggest tech layoffs have occurred at high-profile companies. Countless big-name companies laid off employees and they run the gamut of what tech has to offer. Crypto, that's Coinbase, 
e-commerce, that's Shopify, ride-sharing, Lyft, online payments, Stripe, work management and platform, Asana, and an online real estate broker, Redfin. The list goes on and on, but countless isn't quite the right word. It's 1,024 companies in 2022. As of March 27, it's 528 companies so far, just in 2023. The pandemic created an opportunity for people to increasingly turn to the internet for work, shopping, and socializing. In response, tech companies went on a hiring spree to meet consumer demand. This growth in tech employment started in late 2020 and lasted through 2021. At the same time, the Federal Reserve's policy slashed interest rates throughout 2021, which enabled tech companies to raise capital and invest in growth. But both trends reversed in early 2022. The majority of layoffs at the beginning of 2022 came from startups. But in late 2022 and early 2023, it started to creep into bigger tech as well. Big tech layoffs, like those seen at Meta and Twitter, present a unique opportunity to recruit a caliber of talent that would have previously been impossible to attract. Tech companies will slow down layoffs when and only when it becomes clearer that the Fed is able to slow down inflation. Big Tech treats the hiring and layoffs of employees as a resource they can turn on and off. Google, Meta, Amazon, and other tech companies have laid off more than 100,000 employees in the last year. The surge in tech job cuts continues into 2023. 2023 already has the largest total number of job cuts in a single month since January of 2022, with layoffs in January 2023 having reached 84,414. How did one not see this coming? As tech companies go about laying off employees, they give a lot of reasons. They talk about efficiency, or they talk about reprioritizing and refocusing on what matters to customers. In general, CEOs are notoriously bad at laying off large numbers of employees while trying to still sound empathetic. For several years leading up to this one, most of the tech businesses added a significant amount of headcount. This made sense given what was happening in our business and the economy as, as a whole. However, given the uncertain economy in which we are in and the uncertainty that exists in the near future, they have now chosen to be more streamlined in cost and headcount. This perfectly describes the biggest problem with the wave of layoffs among giant tech companies. They all hired too many people during the pandemic, thinking that things would continue in the same direction, apparently indefinitely, which is illogical. If you think about it, if you ran your business that way, you would be bankrupt right now. If you ran most companies that way, you'd be fired right now. The biggest tech companies in the world hired too many people and now have to tell a bunch of them they no longer have a job. If you're Amazon, the world's largest online retailer, sure, things are good when everyone is staying at home and buying everything from groceries to toilet paper to clothing online. Of course, it does seem like someone should have thought about the fact that people would eventually, you know, go outside again. Or at least they would start going back to the physical retail stores. This wasn't like, hey, 
The holidays are coming and things are going to get busy. So maybe we should hire some people. When you hire seasonal employees to handle a short-term surge in your business, everyone understands it's only temporary. In this case, it was more like, hey, look at how much our business is growing. This will definitely last forever. It didn't. The reason Amazon is laying off employees is the same as almost every tech company right now. They managed the business poorly and didn't have enough foresight. Big tech management has avoided taking responsibility for what happened. Most of them added a significant amount of headcount for whatever reasons given, and then they say, whoops, we hired too many people. It's about as passive as it gets, except it didn't just happen accidentally. There is a valuable lesson for the management of these big tech companies. Hiring is an intentional decision. At most companies, it's an incredibly involved process. These companies sent out press releases early in the pandemic talking about how it was adding hundreds and thousands of employees. It was a thing someone decided was a good idea. There's a good chance you'll just start looking for a new job if you hadn't already. There's a good chance that the next two months will be the least productive of your career as you worry about whether or not you'll be able to pay rent after April. I guess you could argue it's just good business if you think employees are a resource that you can simply turn the dial up and when things are growing and turn it back down again when things change. These are people who have made the decision to give their time and energy to your company. As a leader, you owe it to them to do a better job of managing your most valuable resource. And the most valuable resource is the staff. People are just realizing that their Wi-Fi routers may be at the wrong height. How high to put it for best internet speeds? Putting your Wi-Fi router at the wrong height is one of the biggest home internet mistakes you can make. If you're constantly experiencing Wi-Fi woes, it's time to check your router placement. Placing a router on the floor can dampen its performance, as the device is sending out signals that are immediately absorbed by the ground. Try elevating your router and placing it on a sideboard or shelf to achieve more comprehensive coverage. It is possible to buy a mount for your router to get it nice and high. Otherwise, you'll just have to place it on something that can elevate it. Place your router on a high shelf. Routers send the signal downward, so the higher you place the router, the better off you'll be. But the rules can change if your router isn't on the ground floor of your home. If you've got one router providing whole home coverage, it's best to just choose a central location. Routers send signal out in all directions, so by placing it in a central location, you eliminate the distance from any given device in your home and can get a better connection. Place it in a corner, and all you're doing is sending part of your connection to one area of your home and the other part outside. If you live in a two-story house, place the router closer to the ceiling on the first floor and closer to the floor on the second floor to allow for best coverage. Similarly, it's important to keep your Wi-Fi router away from other objects, especially if they're made of metal. Giving your router the best possible lines of sight means you're maximizing your internet potential. Pixel shift greatly increases megapixel resolution. What is pixel shift multi-shot? 
it can increase four to ten times your cell phone or camera resolution. Does your cell phone or camera have a pixel shift multi-shot function? Pixel shift is a technique that uses the sensor to take multiple photos of the same scene and then combines them to create a single photo with higher resolution and detail. This is done by shifting the sensor slightly between each photo so that each photo captures a slightly different part of the scene. When the photos are combined, the resulting image has more detail than any of the individual photos. Pixel shift is a useful technique for improving the quality of photos taken in low light conditions as it can help to reduce noise and improve color accuracy. It can also be used to create digital zoom images with higher resolution than the camera's native zoom. However, pixel shift can be slow as it requires a camera to take multiple photos of the same scene. It can also be difficult to use as it requires the user to hold the camera very still between each photo. Pixel shift multi-shot is one of the most sophisticated weapons in the megapixel arms race. What is pixel shift? In short, it drastically increases the native resolution of your phone or camera by anywhere from fourfold to tenfold. By leveraging the in-body image stabilization systems, that's IBIS, of modern cameras, pixel shift literally shifts the image sensor multiple times per second to capture more pixels. It then merges these separate frames into a single image, resulting in a much higher resolution image than the camera could take with its native sensor alone. Pixel shift multi-shot technology isn't at all new. In fact, it's a decade old. The Olympus OM system pioneered the practice in 2013 with its then flagship, the Olympus OM DE M1 Mark II, as the micro four-thirds specialist looked for new ways to take part in the megapixel war that was raging at the time. These days, megapixel counts don't equate to bragging rights in quite the same way. However, as more and more camera features IBIS, what was once a boutique technology used by smaller manufacturers is becoming a serious selling point for the big boys. Indeed, Nikon is currently the only major manufacturer not to employ pixel shift technology in any of its cameras. Cameras like the Olympus OM-1 capture eight images for a single frame, so the native 20.4 megapixel sensor can produce photos with an 80 megapixel resolution. In-body image stabilization systems essentially float a camera's image sensor in a magnetic field. This protective field cushions the sensor from camera shake and other external movements so it stays perfectly steady even when the camera is moving. Pixel Shift takes this technology and turns it on its head. Instead of keeping the sensor still while the camera moves, it keeps the camera still while the sensor moves. When you depress the shutter, instead of taking a single frame, Pixel Shift mode takes between 8 and 16 frames in the space of about a second or so. Shifting the sensor by one pixel each time so your camera effectively captures four times as many pixels as it would normally do. Those individual frames are then processed and stacked onto a single shot with quadruple the resolution. The exception is the Canon EOS 6R5 where the resolution is almost tenfold thanks to a new spin on the technology. 
There is, however, an obvious drawback to this. Since the sensor is moving, and given that it takes around a second or two for the process to complete, if the subject you're photographing isn't perfectly still, any movement will register as ghosting in the finished composite image. While some cameras enable you to perform pixel shift while shooting handheld, the technique is only practical for stationary subjects like still life, landscape, architecture, and so on. Pixel shift doesn't just jump ramp up resolution, it can also eliminate false colors. As noted, every major manufacturer except Nikon has cameras that feature pixel shift, though most of them have their own proprietary name for the technology. It should be pointed out that pixel shift isn't always employed to shoot images with increased resolution. Some manufacturers, namely Pentax, have historically employed the technology to provide superior color rendition and pixel quality rather than density. The following cell phones have incorporated pixel shift technology, Google Pixel 3, Vivo X60 series, and the Shiba Microsystems Shiba SR. Presenting Technology Chatter with Benjamin Rockwell and Marty Winston. Marty Winston joins me now. And Marty, uh, you know, when you told me that Dremel had a new Dremel tool out, I was excited. Uh, you know, one, <laughs> yeah. of, one of the things that I, a friend, a, a friend of mine, she was she was talking about how she she went off and she got her Dremel tool to fix whatever it was she was fixing. And I'm like, you know, your your street cred just went like sky high for me. I love it when when people, especially women, when they when they take ownership of a Dremel tool, yes. these these I use them all the time for for various stuff. But uh, so so tell us about this new one. Well, the new one, the Dremel 8250. I mean, it's almost like the product line was reborn. It, it's using lithium-ion battery. It's a brushless motor. It's got more power, more runtime. It is a little bigger, a little beefier. If your old Dremel is close to the size of maybe a corn dog, right? Uh-huh. This one's about halfway between that and a short Philly cheesesteak. Okay. All right. All right. It has a dial to step the speed from 5,000 to 30,000 RPM. Now, don't be intimidated. Uh-huh, That's yeah. per minute. Uh, the 30,000 RPM is only 500 revolutions per second. Sure. <laughs> There's a line of digits on the top of the tool that lights up the speed you're running now, just below that. Mm-hmm. A little bar graph to tell you about your battery. It comes with an eighth inch collet, but fits the 32nd inch, 16 inch, 332nd or eighth inch collets that came with other tools forever and are still available as accessories. Sure. The metal uh, cutting, plastic cutting wheels that come with it fit that collet. And while the kit still includes a little wrench, there are some new convenience features. I mean, you may never have to use it. So. uh, If you got old Dremels, almost every Dremel tool accessory fits every Dremel ever. So think think of the new cordless brushless Dremel 8250 is able to benefit from its ancestors. Awesome. How much uh, how much battery life do we get out of something like that? Uh, how, do you, how do I measure that? How many holes you make in a piece of wood? <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, uh, you <laughs> hours. know, if, I, if I, hours, hours good. OK, that's the yeah. Uh, also got in Mercado open ear, open air headsets now you've seen bone conduction headsets these are not okay all right but they don't cover your ears to go in your ears they're right in front of your ears on the jawbone and that's where these go but 
there's a tiny narrow slot that sends acoustic air coupled audio, stand like a speaker, right? Okay. Points directly into the openings of your ear canals. So you can hear, but others generally can't. That's kind of cool. Okay. Uh, All right. I see, I, I see where they're going with that. All right. Yeah. I like that. It's a rear loop headband. It holds them just forward in, in what you might call the sideburn zone. Mm -hmm. Each side also has a mic, so no boom or stalk. And the arrangement plus good electronics do a good job of canceling background noise. All They're right. rated for six hours of runtime with volume at 80%. These are loud enough to make that loud enough. Okay. Now, you could easily stretch that into eight, maybe 10 to 12 hours with careful usage. And uh, if it isn't crazy, you can buy two. So uh, that's uh, Mercado on Amazon, M-E-R-C-A-T-O. I, I like that idea. Uh, you know, I, I've had some bone conduction in the past, and I wasn't thrilled with it. Uh, you know, it, it it had the low end pretty good, but the the highs it weren't always well represented in the mids, too. Yeah, that, that can be an issue. Now, look, with anything that has a small device driving it, yeah. there's always going to be some compromise or some synthesis to yeah, make it sound yeah. acceptable. But most of the public doesn't have hearing so acute you're going to object to the way that sounds. <laughs> Fair enough. Yes. Yes. Very true with that. Uh, that's uh, everything I wanted to talk about right now. Did you have anything? I, I, <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, we've got like two and a half minutes left. <laughs> okay. Let's talk into the Klein Tools Evolved Combo Square. Okay. Now, you, you've dealt with the squares that you use in marking wood or other stuff. It, it, yeah, it's, yeah, it's yeah. It's up and down. It's got the levels on it. It's got some angles. This one not only has several features specific to electricians, mm -hmm. a good many uh, the, for the rest of us. Some of the electrician stuff has to do with bends and conduit and measurements of conduit and that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. The sliding ruler part doesn't have a set screw. It's using super magnets. So you can okay. will it, it's it 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 it's kind of, and the handle well it has a, a a ninety degree square it's got a forty five degree square it's got those uh, conduit uh, diameter measures on it and mm -hmm, there mm -hmm. are drill holes in the ruler the steel ruler part that are also useful for for like and and the other side is printed with the table so if you're an electrician triple whammy if you're not an electrician still probably your favorite uh, the square. Uh, all I can say is I love Klein Tools. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, I had noticed. You know, uh, uh, Klein Tools is they're a great, a great company. I've uh, I've I've seen a lot of the different things you've come up with and, and talked about over the years with Klein Tools. Oh, they're so creative, so innovative, yeah. and and so much focused on people in the field doing work and what they're facing that they can help cure. Uh, Klein Tools, huzzah, huzzah, <laughs> thank you. <laughs> thank you. So, uh, so uh, this is a lot of really good, useful stuff for people. You know, I, I, I between the Dremel and the Klein tools, I, I, you know, I'm, I'm really excited. These are nerdy things for me to deal with. These are just always great. Well, guys, for guys... It's hardware stores and Radio Shack. And without Radio Shack, there's just hardware stores. <laughs> Fair enough. I, I, I hadn't thought about it like that, but you, you're very right. As for now, this. Am I profiling? 
<laughs> you know, there are some women out there that love their Dremel tools, their their Klein tools, all of that. So, yeah, uh, you are profiling, but we won't hold that against you. Thank you, Benjamin. And thank you, Marty. Public service announcements. Computer club meetings in the New York, New Jersey, and Connecticut tri-state region. Log on to the club website for more information on remote meeting ID. The TechEd Connect had originally scheduled meeting for Thursday, April the 6th, 2023, and the meeting for April has been canceled. The Amateur Computer Group of New Jersey, Friday, has a meeting April the 7th. Meeting time is 8 p.m., online virtual meeting via Jitsi, website is acgnj.org. The King's Bite Computer Club meets Tuesday, April the 11th. Meeting time is 7 p.m. They meet at the Park Plaza Restaurant, 220 Cadman Plaza West in Brooklyn. To confirm, call 347-278-7320. The New York Amateur Computer Club has a meeting on Thursday, April the 13th, 2023. Meeting time is 7 p.m., online virtual meeting via Zoom, and the website is nyacc.org. The Long Island Macintosh Users Group has a meeting on Friday, April the 14th, 2023. Meeting time is 7 p.m., online virtual meeting via Zoom, and the website is limac.org. The Brookdale Computer Users Group meets Thursday, April the 27th, Meeting time is 6.45 p.m. It's a virtual meeting via Zoom, and their website is pcug.com. Our website is pcradioshow.org. We are heard each Wednesday at 6 p.m. Eastern Time on PRN Live, streaming on the Internet. Podcasts of the program is available on prn.live on the Internet. If you have any questions for us, just send us an email addressed to hank at pcradioshow.org. In the meantime, stay in touch and remember to do regular backups. I'm Hank Key, and on behalf of Michael Horowitz, Benjamin Rockwell, and Marty Winston, we thank you for listening. Stay safe and healthy. Until we meet again, same time, same station next week.